Support for Spoleto Backstage is made possible in part by Brook Green Gardens, presenting Bruce Monroe Southern Light, an outdoor immersive exhibit featuring seven large-scale works of art and light. Now open Wednesday through Saturday evenings. Advanced tickets are required and are available at brookgreen.org. Hello and welcome to Spoleto Backstage. It's your ticket not only to a few of Spoleto Festival USA's most memorable performances, but also to some of the behind-the-scenes action and the personalities that have made it all possible. Even in this unprecedented year without a Spoleto Festival, a year without a lot of things, as you definitely noticed, there's way more than enough to explore and enjoy from past seasons, a digital Dock Street theater just waiting for you plus plenty to catch up on when it comes to some of the festival's longtime stars and chamber music heavyweights. I'm Bradley Fuller, and I'm excited to share with you part of an insightful conversation I had with Spoleto Festival's general manager, Nigel Redden. And of course, it's great to be co-hosting once again with that champion of chamber music, the man, the myth, the legend, violinist MC, and artistic director himself, Jeff Nuttall. Jeff, great to have you again. What an honor to be here, Bradley, and, and share the stage with you, so to speak. It's been a, a real pleasure trying to go through time, go through the last 10 years and pick out 11 of my favorite programs from Dock Street. Well, the, the honor is mine as well, and it's been really exciting kind of uh, getting into your brain just a little bit more as you've made these hard cuts and narrowed it down to these select 11 programs. That journey today takes us to... 2011, way back to 2011, the first program of that year. And this this is, you know, a characteristic kind of variety program of chamber music. We have Golihov, Gottschalk, and Schubert. What was it about this particular program that helped it get into the, the final 11? Well, this, I mean, I could not have a program uh, of 11 programs without Schubert Double Cello Quintet. It, for me personally and for the history of the Spoleto Festival, it's hugely important. It was, by all accounts, Giancarlo Minotti's favorite work of chamber music, and it was performed every season from the very first year in Spoleto, Italy. Uh, Charles Wadsworth put it on every program. It usually ended the season. I've changed that up a little bit, but I've tried to have it as much as possible. So Schubert Double Cello Quintet, and in this case with uh, my St. Lawrence Quartet, joined by the young, incredible cellist, Elisa Weilerstein. It was, it was a match made in heaven at the time, and I'll, I'll, st- I'll still never forget that performance. So got to have Schubert double cello. And Oswaldo Golohoff, in my opinion, is the world's greatest living composer. And this piece of Golohoff, uh, The Lullaby and Duena, from a film by Francis Ford Coppola, The Man Who Cried, and then sandwiched right in the middle is this piece by an American composer, 19th century composer, one I think is way ahead of his time or was way ahead of his time, Louis Moreau Gottschalk, this solo piano piece called The Union. Yeah, well, this, you know, I've, I've through the years, people have said, well, solo piece is not chamber music. And I've always thought that basically anything that works on stage at Dock Street Theater is chamber music. And to see and hear a pianist of the stature of Anne-Marie McDermott play this remarkable showpiece with like crazy piano virtuosity and, and crazy tunes. And it, it's just a, it's the perfect sandwich meat, so to speak, in between the Golahoff and, and the Schubert. So here's this piano piece with Yankee Doodle thrown in, what now our national anthem, it wasn't even our national anthem at the time, Star Spangled Banner, 
and also Hail Columbia, which kind of sounds like the itsy bitsy spider, but used to be, you know, a, a bit higher in stature, I guess. Yeah, it's a real, you'll be whistling along as well as having your jaw hit the floor about the, the pyrotechnics involved with the piano playing. And starting this whole program off is a composer from our own times and someone with a special tie to the chamber music series, Osvaldo Golihov. Yes, Ozzy is one of my closest friends and I, I'm slightly biased, of course, but I really believe he's the world's greatest living composer. He has a way of distilling emotion through sound unlike any other. And Charles Wadsworth brought him as composer in residence in my early years in the, in the late 90s. And we're so thrilled and honored that he has returned this season again to be composer in residence because not only is he a great composer, he's a charming speaker and an amazing person. So here's Oswaldo to introduce the lullaby and duena. Thank you. So uh, what we will hear now is a small piece, a, about eight minutes long, divided in three short movements. Um, and these are themes from a film that I scored in the year 2000 called The Man Who Cried. The first one is a lullaby. Um, and doesn't need any further explanation, that it moves without interruption into a, a slow and dark uh, lament that features the lowest register of the viola um, and is accompanied by the rest of the instruments and is to me the equivalent of a, what would be a gypsy blues, you know, and, and that segues into a very fast gallop in which the clarinet chases the flute uh, in the tune and the rest of the instruments are like uh, the horses, so to speak. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's a piece. Thank you. Thank Oscar. you. So um, in order to make this happen, this, uh, we, we searched the depths of Transylvania to, to find the, the most authentic gypsy band we, we could come up with. Um, and so let's, let's welcome the Wild and Crazy Spoleto Gypsy Band Orchestra. So we have Tara Helen O'Connor on flute. Woo! The amazing Mark Feuer, who is uh, hanging out with us as part of the St. Lawrence Quartet. Scott St. John, our other fiddle player, has a new baby girl, Julia. And he's, uh, yeah, let's... He's at home being a dad, and we've been having a great time uh, traveling around playing with Mark. So, great warm Spoleto welcome for Mark Feuer. Uh, Leslie Robertson, another member of the quartet. Chris Costanza on cello, yeah. The mad gypsy bassist Tony Monzo on uh. And I didn't know actually that, you know, Hagerstown, Maryland is, is a gypsy stronghold. I, I didn't realize that. So uh, t the ultimate gypsy, Todd Palmer on clarinet. So. Thank you. 
Now, you didn't think you'd get off easy today though, right? Audience participation time. This next piece, and I was trying to find, you know, the whole anniversary thing this year. We got 150 years, start of the Civil War. I was looking out at Fort Sumter off the, off the battery and thinking, wow, that's incredible. History itself. And then 100 years we'd be celebrating if uh, Giancarlo Manotti were still alive, it would be his 100th birthday this year. And he's only 50 years younger than the Civil War. I, I really, that was an interesting, <laughs> interesting juxtaposition. So uh, I, I tried to find some music that was written here in the States during the Civil War. And I found this Louis Moreau Gottschalk. Uh, and interestingly, Gottschalk was by far the world's most famous pianist in his day. In the 1860s, he was a rock star. And during the Civil War, traveled all across the country by train playing concerts. Um, and a lot of it was writing pieces that did two things. They showed off his incredible virtuosic technique at the piano, and they, they used tunes that you all could identify with as the audiences of the day. So this is no exception, and I think definitely two out of the three tunes we will be able to do really well on. So uh, we do need some support. <laughs> and so um, to take you through it, since I don't play the piano at all, please welcome Anne-Marie McDermott. I should say welcome back, right? Isn't it great to have her back? It's amazing. So um, I know, I'm guessing, actually all three of these tunes, the piece is called The Union, and we're just going to play the three tunes that you will hear. Um, I bet most of you know these pretty intimately, though I was not that familiar with one of them. The first one is called Hail Columbia. Harmonized, lovely. Um, but you know, I was unaware that that was the national, I mean, basically the unofficial national anthem of the United States until 1931. Did you all know that or, or something? No. Good. I was worried. I was like. <laughs> now, this is where the audience participation. Um, for this tune, I think it's probably best to whistle, and you'll understand why. It, it, it sounds like this. Okay, so are we ready to try sort of medium tempo? Get your. Here we go. <sighs> wow. You guys win. That was great. Remember that moment as a kid when you discovered you could actually whistle when you're breathing in as well as breathing out? I was, that was the coolest thing ever for me. Um, so that's great. So the point of this is, in 1865 or something, when they went to hear Gottschalk, you guys would all whistle along with that when you hear that. So don't be shy. Join in when you hear that tune. Um, and this is a really beautiful version of a tune which we all know and love. So that's, that's also humming, I think, is good. Standing is also appropriate. Um, <laughs> if you get tapped in the butt when you stand, maybe you should sit back again. But um, So 
that was, that's, that's the idea. And the, the alternate title to this piece was a paraphrase on three national airs. Hail Columbia, of course, Star Spangled Banner, and Yankee Doodle. And these were all easily identifiable tunes that he showed off with. So, we all ready? Yep. Cool. <laughs> Have fun.
Now, the other part of the uh, anniversary celebration, so to speak, is uh, Manotzi 100th birthday. And many of you probably know that from the very early days in Spoleto, Italy, uh, the Schubert double cello quintet was played at every season. Uh, in early years of the quartet here with Charles Wadsworth, we would end uh, the festival pretty much every year with the double cello quintet. Um, and I thought we'd change it up a little bit. We're going to end with the Trout Quintet, which is the ultimate party piece. And we're going to begin with a, a tip of a hat to Maestro Manotti with the Schubert double cello quintet. Interestingly, if you read about Schubert's life, I mean, it's remarkable. He wrote this piece, which is now widely considered to be one of the greatest ever composed. Uh, in 1828, he was two months from his death at 31. And it was not a pleasant death. Uh, he died of syphilis. Um, luckily, we don't have to deal with too much of that these days. But back then, it was pretty pro prominent and horrible, unpleasant death. But to write this remarkable music, unearthly in its beauty and sublimity at that time, is, is really quite something. And amazingly, he sent it to his publisher uh, right after finishing it, a month before he died, saying, hey, I've finished this new quintet. Take, take a look. If you're interested, it might be something... You know, no interest. Publishers were not interested. They wanted songs. So the piece itself was not performed in public until 1850, if you can imagine that. It wasn't published until 1853, I think. So it's incredible how history has changed things around, and now it's considered to be one of the gems of the repertoire. And if you're listening up there, Franz, um, it's, it's, all come, it's all come true. I mean, you, he, he wrote this incredible stuff, and he never really got to see it celebrated like it, it is today. So the piece is in four movements, and it does require a certain, um, it's the, as I like to say, the, the brain switch. You have to flick it on to slow. Because we're so programmed, you know, for the 30-second hits, the MTV three-minute pop tunes. And Schubert is at a whole other speed, uh, as, as described so poetically, heavenly length. Uh, <laughs> Now, this is a very poetic, musicological way of saying, this piece is really long. <laughs> but it is remarkable. He's, he's so honest in his generosity of spirit and laying down these melodies, which just flow over you. The first two movements, uh, time really does stand still at times. So it's Allegro Manantropo, first movement, Adagio, second movement, with this dramatic storm in the middle, with a, a cry in the wilderness in contrast to the sublime calm of the opening of the movement. And then that material returns after the storm in a, a transformed version, uh, an amazing but subtle touch by Schubert. Uh, at this point, he realizes he can't sustain that kind of calm, and all hell breaks loose with the scherzo. It's an incredible. Uh, whoops of exuberance are encouraged uh, <laughs> from you all at this point. It, it's quite remarkable. And in contrast, this, the trio section is a walk down into the depths of hell. It, it couldn't be more dark and brooding and seeing the end. And then we return to the beginning of the concert with the Gypsy Band for the Allegretto Fourth Movement, which is pure, fun, unadulterated gypsy music with a little Viennese landler thrown in the middle for, uh, for contrast. So uh, the St. Lawrence Quartet, who you've all met, and we're thrilled to have Elisa Weilerstein back with us for the entire festival. Please welcome them to the stage.
That was Schubert's Double Cello Quintet, live from the Dock Street Theater stage in Charleston, South Carolina, 
part of the chamber music series at Spoleto Festival USA, the St. Lawrence String Quartet, joined by a young Elisa Weilerstein. What a treat to play that with Elisa. It's, it's one of those special moments when you get to meet new people who you didn't know, and, and that was one of our early performances with her. Now, speaking of Spoleto history, I think it's safe to say that the festival, as we know, it would not exist without Nigel Redden. Uh, I definitely would not be there without Nigel Redden. He's incredibly supportive. And I think it's it's great that, Bradley, you had a chance to speak with Nigel. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, as the, the general manager of the festival, having to cancel it, as obvious as it seems now in hindsight, that was a, a huge decision for him to make and uh, one that hurt quite a bit. And, and I was just really grateful to speak to Nigel and have him share some of his feelings on it, you know, some of the thinking process, how he made the decision with others on the Spoleto Festival team. Uh, but I was also really interested in some of the nuts and bolts, some of the kind of practical issues you might not even think about that are all involved in calling off a festival the size of Spoleto. So here he is filling me in on all that. First, my sympathies about the cancellation of this year's festival. I know personally for me, it's been a loss that has been and will continue to be keenly felt by South Carolinians and other arts lovers as well. How have you been since the big decision? Well, it's been very painful. This is the first year that in 30-some years that I've not been preparing for a festival, whether it was Spoleto or Santa Fe or the Lincoln Center Festival. And it's been very, very strange. I uh, our rehearsals would have begun uh, at the end of April, and I would be watching people put together an opera. I'd be watching ticket sales. We'd be on edge in a kind of very positive way, be greeting artists who are arriving. And somehow it's so anticlimactic. I, I think the audience reaction that we got most often was that it was heartbreaking, and I absolutely feel that that's correct. Well, has some of that pent up energy that would normally be going toward those rehearsals, those ticket sales, have you found a way to channel that or has it dissipated in the midst of all that grief? What's, what, what are you doing with, with kind of the, uh, the expectation and, and the misplaced energy there? Well, one of the things that uh, has happened is, of course, we've been, had to unravel the 2020 festival. We've been in touch with artists, with uh, audience members, with donors, with volunteers and so on. And that has been very complicated. I mean, we had to undo months of ticket sales in the course of a few weeks. We had to be in touch with artists in a way that one doesn't want to have to be in touch with artists. One doesn't want to have to say, oh, by the way, the thing that you've been planning to do in Charleston is just not going to happen. So there's been a fair amount of energy spent on undoing. And now with my colleagues, I am, and with various artists, we're going ahead with planning 2021. On some level, the whole ethos of doing a festival, the whole um, the work schedule is that you spend an enormous amount of time preparing for something that's only going to last for, in our case, 17 days. And so you spend a lot of time doing kind of wishful thinking and, and wondering whether this can go with that and somehow how the program that we had planned for 2020, which was certainly tending or, or trending to be very popular. We 
our ticket sales were extremely good. Uh, the audience reaction was extremely good. But somehow we now have to think about how we can make what would have been a wonderful program that much better in 2021. So some of the events we will definitely do in 2021. Others will are still up in the air and some we know already we won't be able to do. I'm wondering, you know, in hindsight, this decision to cancel seems like an inevitability given how just about every event involving crowds or audiences is pretty much out of the question right now. But of course, our knowledge and experience with this whole pandemic has been changing on a weekly basis since the new year. So what was the timeline of events for the decision to cancel the festival? When did the first worries start to you know, sneak their way into your mind? Was there a point when you and the board were 50-50, ambivalent about calling it off? And then you know, at what point did cancellation really become the only viable route to take? Well, I, I, I mean, it's, it's a, it was an extremely quick timeline. In, at the beginning of March, we had uh, done what is locals weekend. That is, we'd, we typically discount a number of tickets for people who live in the Charleston area because we want to make sure that people who live in the Charleston area come to the festival. And the locals weekend had been extraordinarily successful. It had been as successful as I think any in our history. And we thought, oh, well, this is a good sign because already there was talk about the virus and there was talk about uh, the illness coming. And then uh, I suppose I went to England and I was going on to France and to Senegal, of all places, in early March. And as we were getting, as I was getting on the plane, I mean, there was uh, some question of whether we really should go. So I was going at that point with my wife. And then it really seemed as if things were getting more difficult. And I had a conversation with members of our staff who said, basically, you have to come back. So I came back on Monday and on Tuesday, talked to chairman of our board and said, I think we have to have a, a meeting of the management committee, which is the board leadership, basically to say that we really have to think very hard about whether we're going to make some changes. And then by the time we had the, the, the meeting, which was a phone meeting on Thursday, it was really apparent that we would have to cancel. And we had a board meeting the following I think Tuesday, and at that point, we had a discussion with board members. There were a few who, well, I think at that point there weren't any who didn't think that it was the right thing to do to cancel. Uh, it just seemed so difficult to bring people from overseas where there might be quarantine, uh, quarantining, bringing them into the country. There was the issue of um, large gatherings. Soon after that, the city of Charleston said that gatherings of 10 or more would not be permissible, and we would have to have had as many as 100 people in the rehearsals for an opera between the chorus, the orchestra, and um, singers on stage, and uh, technical people it would have been well over 100. So there seemed to be no other choice. It was We had to do it then out of respect to our audience, uh, out of respect to uh, the artists who are coming. The ticket sales, in fact, were also an indication because through the first, let's say, two weeks, 10 days of March, they'd remained pretty strong. But after maybe March 15th, they, instead of becoming ticket sales, they were ticket refunds. I mean, we were typically, people were asking for refunds at that point, and, and we certainly honored those requests. Uh, so uh, the audience knew that it was inevitable, the board knew it was inevitable, and 
That was very, very sad. Given all the planning that goes into Spoleto Festival and the fact that you had to call it off about two months before it was set to begin, what kind of you know, expenditures, maybe that people wouldn't even think about. Is there anything there that you simply can't recover? You know, what kind of losses there, aside from maybe having to push an act back a year, what kind of losses there are just permanently gone from the lateness of the decision? Well, one of them that I actually had no idea about um, was that for the most part, people charge their tickets on a credit card. The credit card fees, which you know, amount between 2 and 3%, of of sales, they are not refundable. So all of a sudden, we have a box office that has zero money in it, and we have $100,000 or whatever in, um, in expenses that are associated with sales that we've now had to refund. But I mean, that obviously is, is something that applies to any business, and it just came as a surprise to me. Uh, I thought that the, you know, those, those um, charges would be refunded as well. We have wanted to treat artists as well as we possibly can. So in many, many cases, we'd already paid a certain amount to the artists, uh, to the companies. It's, it's typical that you put some, some kind of deposit down when a contract is signed. And we could try to claw those back, but we don't want to. We don't want to try to claw those back because we have a reputation in the field. We obviously respect the artists who we wanted to have on stage in 2020. And we want to be very careful with those relationships. Well, I, I think it seems to underscore at least, you know, this old idea that difficult situations bring out true colors. And, and from what I've heard online, at least, uh, I, I could imagine some of those performing artists would be very grateful that the festival kept at least part of its uh, a financial commitment. And as far as the more immediate future goes, what has your attention occupied at the moment for Spoleto Festival USA? Well, one of the things that I, I think is really terrific, and of course, you've been, you're participating in this, and I want to thank you very much, dedicating, I mean, you're dedicating Sonatas and Soundscapes to uh, the Spoleto Festival USA Bank of America Chamber Music Series. Uh, we're having other um, ways of reaching an audience online. We are thinking of, of having digital parties. That is often what happens at, at the end of an event in the festival is that there's some kind of festivities involved. And festivals are social events in addition to being artistic events. And uh, Jeff Nuttall was saying that he feels that the energy that the audience gives him when he's on stage performing makes the performance better. And I feel that that's absolutely true. And afterwards, I think that part of what makes the festival special is that people do gather and people who don't really know each other end up becoming Spoleto friends. And it doesn't really matter where they're from. And they, you know, I'll see you next year in, in Charleston, even if they're from Santa Barbara or from, you know, Bangor. And so it's it's something that we want to maintain during the festival that there be the kind of online content the broadcast content that you're participating in but that there also be these intimate times when people can talk to some of the artists who are participating in the, would have participated in the festival or are participating in the online version of the festival and uh, talk to some of us who are on staff and talk to each other because i think that's also part of the festival 
Well, Nigel, thanks so much for opening up some about what I know has been a very difficult process for you. All best to you and to Spoleto Festival and uh, hope you have fun as the life of the video call party. Okay. And thank you, Bradley, for being such a loyal participant in the festival. That was a conversation I had with Nigel Redden, Spoleto Festival USA's general director since 1995. You know, it really wasn't easy for me to hear about Spoleto Festival's cancellation. So I, I can't imagine, you know, everything that Nigel must have been feeling. Um, really just, I, I, my heart goes out to him and, and to everyone whose loss, you know, is, uh, is really uh, being felt here with the cancellation of the festival. That's you too, Jeff. Yeah, it was it was as you can imagine some really difficult and painful phone calls back and forth. You know, thinking about options, what could we do? Uh, you know, the idea that oh, we could come and do chamber music with no audience. You know, like the NFL is trying to think about doing. And but we decided, uh, you know, as Nigel explained, it was a really difficult decision, but uh, better to call the whole thing off than to try to do a, a half baked version. Spoleto Backstage is made possible in part by Bank of America and the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Special thanks to Spoleto Festival USA. The engineer for this podcast is Duke Marcos. The producer is A.T. Shire. The executive producer is Sherry Hutchinson. And I'm Bradley Fuller. Until next time, take care. <laughs>